A man walks into the ICU, saying, Help me, I can't breathe. A little girl walks in at the same time, saying, Help me, I have a splinter in my finger. The nurse rushes the girl with the splinter into surgery, but tells the man who can't breathe to wait in the lobby. You ask the nurse, Why? She explains, The man had a panic attack. It should go away in a while, and we are monitoring him in the lobby, in case it gets worse. As for the girl, she only saw the splinter, but one look at her and I knew she was in serious trouble and needed surgery immediately. In today's book review, we will look at triage, not in hospitals, but in the theologicals. Hi, my name is Terence, and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Every month, I review Faith Life's free book of the month, and while waiting for the next free book, I pick a book of my choice. And today I review Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage by Gavin Otland. The purpose of medical triage is to get limited and timely help to the right people. You ask, what do you mean by right people? Well, if you have many people calling for help, you first get all the people who will live They need medical attention, but they will live and move them to the left. Then you get all the people who will die. No matter what you do for them, they will die and move them to the right. Those who are left are people who, if left untended, would die. And it is to them we give the limited time and resources, a shot to live. Similarly, theological triage sorts doctrines into three levels. First-level doctrines are essential and non-negotiable to the faith, like the divinity of Christ. Second-level doctrines separate believers into their churches or denominations. I so strongly disagree with you, such that I live out my convictions in a separate church, but I still call you brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, you believe in baptism by sprinkling, while I believe baptism is by immersion. Now, third-level doctrines are differences that should not separate fellowship within the local church. For example, maybe young earth and old earth creationism. Theological triage helps us to know how much time and energy to invest in a doctrinal dispute, or as the title of the book says, finding the right hills to die on. While the idea of theological triage is simple, you just sort doctrines into three buckets, The sorting can be problematic. Imagine a man who was told he will die no matter what we do for him. He says, My situation is not as bad as you think it is. I need medical help. I might live. Or imagine a woman who is asked to go home. She says, I'm not as well as you think I am. I need medical help. I might die. Who decides these cases? who is best positioned to do triage? Doctors and medical professionals. They are not infallible, but we trust them. We have to, to do the hard job of not treating, at least not yet, but of sorting. I came to Ortland's book, hoping he can help me do triage. I have a doctrine in mind, which I see as a first-level issue, but some see it as a second or even third-level issue. I think it's urgent and important, while others are indifferent. Will Otland help me? The book is divided into two parts. Part one is titled, Why Theological Triage? 
Here he makes the case for theological triage in three chapters. Chapter 1 explains the danger of doctrinal sectarianism or division. Chapter 2 explains the danger of doctrinal minimalism. In chapter 3, he gives his personal testimony for triage. Part 2 of the book is titled Theological Triage at Work. The three chapters correspond to the three levels. They are why primary doctrines are worth fighting for, navigating the complexity of secondary doctrines, and last chapter, why we should not divide over tertiary doctrines. The book ends with a conclusion titled A Call to Theological Humility. In the first part of the book, Ortland argues we all lean either towards doctrinal sectarianism or minimalism. He quotes Martin Luther, Softness and hardness are the two main faults from which all the mistakes of pastors come. End quote. Do you lean on the hard side? Do you see in every doctrine a fight, every doctrine a hill to die on? Only because all of Scripture is God-breathed and thus necessary to defend with all our might. Right? In the first chapter, we read that defending the inerrancy of Scripture does not mean that all doctrines are created equal. He quotes Toretin, Calvin, Bavinck, uh, Spurgeon, and Baxter. These guys are all fighters, and they are saying not every doctrine is worth fighting for. Because, as Ortland puts it, the unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. End quote. Unity here is not a code word for surrender to minimalism. Unity is in the Bible. While I appreciate Ortland's reminder to not be too hard because love and unity is essential to our faith, my problem, the one that I face, is not that I'm divisive while I'm conscious of that danger. What I see is a creeping danger of doctrinal minimalism around me, in society in general. Ortland writes, I quote, I've often heard people say it's not a gospel issue. It's just a secondary issue. And of course, we should distinguish between gospel and secondary issues. But if we stop at this basic distinction, we risk obscuring the significance of secondary doctrines. I worry that when people make this distinction, they mean something like it's a secondary issue. Therefore, it doesn't really matter. While I sympathize with the instinct to focus on the gospel, we must recognize that distinguishing between the gospel and other doctrines is a complicated task. For example, doctrines can be secondary or non-essential to the gospel and yet still make a difference in how we uphold the gospel. End quote. The bulk of chapter 2 is uh, Ortland arguing that non-essential doctrines are significant for scripture, significant to church history, significant to the Christian life, and significant to essential doctrines. I found most thought-provoking this quote from Gresham Macken, better to be wrong than indifferent. If you know someone who is divisive over doctrine, you ask him to read chapter 1 of this book. If you know someone who is dismissive of doctrine, you ask her to read chapter 2. This means that if both parties read both chapters, we will understand each other better just like how we can better understand Gavin Ortland's concerns as he works out triage in his own life. Uh, in the third chapter, uh, he explains how he was baptized as an infant. He grew up Presbyterian. Naturally, the seminary he attended was also Presbyterian. Reflecting on his journey, he writes, There is no way I can sufficiently emphasize my gratitude for my experiences. 
Next, some of my happiest memories and deepest friendships in my life, okay, coming within the Presbyterian circle. And he also writes, a combination of um, this, this combination of theological depth and relational warmth. We, uh, which is Ortland and his wife, sense something healthy and beautiful about the theological culture at Covenant Seminary. And we have always felt discontent with pursuing anything less. So it's, uh, end quote, it's such a glowing review of the Presbyterians that the reader almost signs up to join the Presbyterians and then realizes that Ortland tells us that he is leaving. He is not leaving because of personal dissatisfaction. He was happy, but he is leaving because of doctrinal convictions. Triage ruined the trajectory he was heading, but that's okay because he got to write a book. In uh, this chapter, we see him uh, doing triage, okay? triage in practice, not as detached what-ifs, uh, mental exercise, but as a believer wrestling to make decisions with real lasting impact. For Ortland, that meant leaving the Presbyterians into the unknown. I was searching for a grand old hymn to describe the tension in the triage, but all I got was this. Let me read to you these lyrics and let's see whether you can guess where it comes from and how fitting it is to talk about the tension in triage. I can hear you, but I won't. Some look for trouble while others don't. There's a thousand reasons I should go about my day and ignore your whispers, which I wish would go away. What do you want? Because you've been keeping me awake. Are you here to distract me so I make a big mistake? Or are you someone out there who's a little bit like me, who knows deep down I'm not where I meant to be? Now, that uh, poem or uh, song lyric doesn't come from a hymn from uh, yesteryears, but it came from Elsa's song from Frozen 2. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, it fits well for this uh, topic we are in. Into the unknown. Now, let's go into part two. Theological triage at work. Now we come to the essence of the matter. How do we do triage? You have convinced me that it's important. How do we do it? How do we classify doctrines into three levels? It might surprise you to know that classification is a tough technological problem. Complex algorithms have been invented and continue to be invented to recognize voices and faces to sort fruits into good or bad grades, to tell whether a painting is real or fake, and even which artist painted it. The way many of these technologies work is to first figure out what is the criteria and then check whether the voice, face, apple, or painting fulfills that criteria. And we do the same with doctrine. Ortland begins with Eric Toynus. Uh, eight criteria on deciding the importance of a doctrine. Number one, biblical clarity. Number two, relevance to the character of God. Number three, relevance to the essence of the gospel. Number four, biblical frequency and significance. How often in scripture it is taught and what weight scripture places upon it. Number five, effect on other doctrines. Number six, consensus among Christians past and present. Number seven, effect on personal and church life. Number eight, current cultural pressure to deny a teaching of scripture. Notice that according to Toynus, the Bible is not the only criteria. 
He also puts uh, historical and contemporary thought. And how does this doctrine affect me and my church into the equation? Wayne Grudem asks similar questions, eight of them cited in this book when it comes to deciding where to draw the boundary on the importance of doctrines. Wayne Grudem also warns us not to ask certain questions. We should not ask, are the advocates my friends? Are they nice people? <laughs> Will we lose money or members if we exclude them? Will the academic community criticize us as being too narrow-minded? Will someone take us to court over this? To me, Ortland's analysis on the criteria and questions are not really groundbreaking. While it's helpful to put them together and to talk them through, I think that thoughtful readers working on triage would figure them out sooner or later. But what Ortland uniquely brings to the table are well-researched and well-written examples. If you were to go back 100 years to the church embroiled in the biggest controversy of that time, how would you decide on that controversy? Is the virgin birth an essential doctrine? Or is it a doctrine that fellow Christians can agree to disagree? Ortland brings us through Macken's defense on the importance of the doctrine of the virgin birth. Unlike justification by faith, the virgin birth seems so peripheral. Jesus never said, I was born a virgin. Nobody taught it in Acts and nobody mentions it in the epistles. Ortland writes, Macken distinguished between affirming the virgin birth and affirming it as a first-rank doctrine. He recognized that in his day, there are many who tell us that though they believe in the virgin birth themselves, they do not think that that belief is important for all men or essential even to the corporate witness of the church. In contrast to this approach, Macken argued that the virgin birth is not a matter of private judgment, but is essential to the church's worship, witness, and vitality. To support this claim, he developed three considerations, end quote. Now, if you want to know what those three considerations are, you can read Macken or Ortland. Now, another example that Ortland gives is, uh, now imagine, all right, so this is me uh, paraphrasing it. Uh, now, imagine you're transported not 100 years to the past, but 500 years. And sitting beside you is Martin Luther, the great reformer. Imagine he is having second thoughts. He questions out loud. Is justification by faith alone worth dying for? He remains convinced that it is true. But how important is this truth when the church seems to have moved along fine for a thousand years without a complete articulation of this doctrine? <laughs> or coming back to our time, how essential is justification by faith alone when Christians are saved without knowing it? Ask yourself, when you first believed Jesus is Lord, did, you, did that belief come together with an accurate grasp of sola fide, faith alone? Now, Otland covers these questions and more in uh, that chapter. In the next chapter, he navigates the complexity of secondary doctrines. You would think and hope that after we all agreed on the criteria for first-rank doctrine, it would be easy to agree on what is a first-rank doctrine. Sadly, no. Earlier, I mentioned the dying man who thinks he has a shot to live. Let me give another example. Have you ever wondered why bats are not considered birds? Well, a child could tell you, well, that's easy, because bats don't lay eggs. Hmm. Then why is a platypus not considered a bird? It has a duck's beak 
and it lays eggs, but it is classified as a mammal, not a bird. Curious, isn't it? Now imagine when the platypus was discovered, an old ornithologist received news that a new bird species was discovered in Australia. He sells all he has, packs everything, and plans to spend the rest of his life studying the new bird. When he realizes it's not a bird, <laughs> but a unique mammal, would he just lazily comment? Curious, isn't it? If we don't get the category right, we can overcommit, like the ornithologist flying to Australia to study a duck-faced mammal. When it comes to doctrinal debates, Christians often overcommit or don't care, can't care less, falling into the two extremes. We need a middle category. And Otland writes, this chapter is the most difficult and complicated of the whole book. End quote. And I agree, the second uh, level doctrines, the second ranks, is difficult. If you could name the top five controversies among evangelicals, what would they be? Otland wades into not one, not two, but three controversies in his heroic attempt to show to us it is complicated. Now, he does not resolve those uh, controversies in this chapter. He just tells us how to rank them and, our, and suggest what our posture should be. Listen to what he writes here on the question of women in ministry. I quote, Complementarians conceive of egalitarians as compromising liberals, and egalitarians regard complementarians as sexists who oppress women. It would be better to recognize that there are a variety of expressions of each view and to look for points of contact between the more thoughtful and careful proponents of each side, yet without downplaying the differences. There are godly and intelligent Christians on each side. We must be wary of labeling this a second-rank issue on paper, but allowing it to occupy a first-rank position emotionally and practically." End quote. The tensions exist. He doesn't just cover them up. The differences should not be dismissed. But don't pick this hill to die on, he says. Don't die here. Now, the next chapter is on third-rank doctrines. For example, where do you stand on creation or the last days? Otland comments, but it is a historical irony that, that American evangelicals have tended to divide over the peripheral aspects of creation and eschatology while ignoring the most central aspects of these doctrines. Thus, many evangelicals focus more on the timing of the rapture, the identity of the Antichrist, and the nature of the millennium, all, in my view, third-rank doctrines. Then they do on the second coming of Christ, the final resurrection, or the final judgment, all, in my view, first-rank doctrines. Similarly, many evangelicals are intimately familiar with the creation wars, but have never given any sustained reflection to more basic questions about the goodness and contingency of creation on which the early church expended so much energy and which are vital to a Christian worldview. End quote. What I got from him here is doctrines can be sliced into first, second, and third rank. Let me ask you, is creationism a first, second, or third rank doctrine? That's a vague question, preloaded with assumptions. You assume I know what you are asking. But do you mean, okay, when I ask the question, do you mean creationism as in whether God created the world? 
If you don't agree that God created the world, I don't think you can call yourself a Christian. <laughs> That's a clear first-rank doctrine. But if you mean by creationism, as in whether the days in Genesis 1 refer to 24-hour days or not, is this a second-rank or third-rank issue? Ortland points out that some would even argue that any other interpretation undermines the inerrancy of the Bible, thus making this a first-rank issue. Allow me some reflections after reading this book. What is the difference between the three levels in theological triage? In my own words, in the first level, it goes like this. Because we both believe in the Bible, I must do A. And you must do A also. In the second level, it goes like this. Because we both believe in the Bible, I must do A and you must do B. In the third level, it goes like this. Because we both believe in the Bible, I do A, and you should accept A, or vice versa. I mean, uh, what A is, or what doing A is, can be right beliefs or right thoughts or some practical decisions in the church. But uh, what we see here is uh, the first, second, and third level does uh, pose a challenge to us on how we conduct our lives. Orton's aim in this book is not just presenting the challenges and the methods to sort doctrines into different levels. More importantly, is the posture of the Christian in those three levels. And the way I put it in, uh, again, my own words is this. In the first level, you bring a gun. It's uh, demolish every argument time. In the second level, you bring a rapier. We fence, we score points, we hope to win each other over, but we shake hands after the match. And uh, in the third level, you bring a pillow. We fight, but we still sleep in the same house. If we enter into a theological conflict knowing the rules of engagement, whether to bring a gun, a rapier, or a pillow, being clear where the doctrine sits, we can have more meaningful exchanges. Perhaps the first question to ask is not, why do you believe this is true? But why do you believe this is important? As I hope you can tell from this review, theological triage is not easy, and people will not agree. But that's true of doctors anyway. That's why a terminal cancer diagnosis leads to second opinions. Astronomers don't agree. Pluto was a planet since it was discovered in the 1930s. Then 70 years later, Pluto was demoted. It's no longer considered a planet. So what is the most important attitude when it comes to theological triage? Ortland concludes the book with a chapter titled A Call to Theological Humility. Ortland writes, In doing theological triage, humility is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing. It is our constant need, no matter what issue we are facing. End quote. After reading this book, I have this idea that maybe one of you, a listener, uh, can take up. Let's do a triage survey. We sort of know the positions many church leaders take. We kind of know what they, their positions are on women in ministry, spiritual gifts, millennium, creationism, virgin birth, and salvation. My idea is, do we know how those, uh, these uh, experts, okay, quote-unquote experts, would rank uh, these uh, importance, the importance of these doctrines? What if every pastor, preacher, theologian, missionary was to rank the millennium question as third rank? 
maybe that would settle the question on how important this doctrine is. Or what if all of them say it's a second rank? Then that would be sending a different signal. Notice that the expert may ho firmly hold conflicting positions, but if they all agree on the ranking, on how important it is, that helps us to reflect on our posture towards that doctrine, whether we need to bring a gun, a rapier, or a pillow to the fight. Now, say the experts don't agree. Opinions are scattered even within the same denomination. Some insist it's a first rank, some argue it's second, and some are just indifferent. I suggest that variance could be an indicator of an emerging controversy. For example, critical race theory and the church. Is it a first rank gospel issue or is it a third rank lot of hot air over nothing? Let me give you another issue. Churches closing down because of COVID. If you, if you disagree with uh, your uh, church's position on this, is this cause for separation? Finding the right hills to die on, the, this book, doesn't explore the COVID question, but Oatland wrote a response to Pastor MacArthur's uh, strong position in his blog at gavinotland.com. That's gavinotland.com. In that blog, you will also find chapter questions for this book, questions suitable for a weekly small setting or individual reflection. Now, after reading this book, well, what next? Is there more room to explore on the topic of triage? Or has uh, Otland uh, squeezed everything that we can talk about or think about on this topic? I suggest there are more things we can do. Before this book was published, as I was uh, mentioning earlier on, I was trying to figure out what to do with this doctrine. I was uh, studying a theological triage on, on this uh, New Apostolic Reformation, or the concept of modern-day apostles. I treated it, I looked at it as a first-rank doctrine, a matter critical to the faith and requiring a decisive position in my church. After some time, a lot of time has passed, and talking with other thoughtful believers, uh, further reflection, and reading this book, my view has shifted. I remain adamant on my position on the New Apostolic Reformation. I remain fully convinced on what the Bible speaks on this matter, but I no longer see it as a first-rank issue. In my mind, it's demoted to second rank. It's important enough for me to leave my church, but not so important that I would see opposing views as heresy. It's at the boundary, though. It's really pushing near first rank. I'm still feel quite strongly about this topic, but uh, being able to position it as first rank allows me to uh, moderate my strong views and emotions. That is why I think there is room to explore in triage. I know I'm right, I just want to know how far do I take this argument, not just in the local church, but in the circles of influence that I belong to. And that question applies to you too. You know you're right, but how far do you want to take that argument? So I hope this book on triage is the beginning of a conversation that continues on. Triage is a tool for us to understand and contribute to past, present, and future theological debates with the purpose to make us better Christians. Quick to listen, slow to speak, humble, bold, and steadfast to build up, not tear down the church. This is a reading and reader's review of Finding the Right Hills to Die On 
The Case for Theological Triage by Gavin Ortland. Now, if you had to do triage on this podcast, where would I be? Would it be A, a great Christian book review podcast that everyone you know should subscribe to, or B, a podcast with potential to live a good and meaningful life if it gets the care, meaning subscribers, that it needs, or C, a dying podcast that just doesn't know it's dying yet. And if you do believe so, I'd like a second opinion. Do you mind getting someone else to listen to this podcast? Perhaps if more listeners shared your view, I would agree. In any case, it is quite clear what you need to do. You need to tell more people to listen to the Reading and Readers podcast. Thanks for listening.